You're listening to United Q Podcast. We're brought to you by ProQ, Kamado Joe, Thermopen, and Smokewood Shack. ProQ's extensive range of bullet smokers, reverse flow, and gravity-fed smokers will suit all, from the home enthusiast to the big volume caterer. Kamado Joe, the king of ceramics, is renowned for build quality and innovation. When smoking, roasting, or searing, get that great barbecue taste and keep the moisture locked in. Thermapen Instant Read Thermometers. Take the guesswork out of barbecuing with the super fast Thermapen. Smokewood Shack delivers quality smoking wood every time. They provide the smoky goodness, you provide the talent. This week's show, we have senior chef lecturer at Westminster Kingsway College um, and author of the series of the Game Larder books, both Feathers and Venison. We have Jose Suto. Hi, Jose, are you all right? Hi, yeah. Hi, Benny, doing all right? Yeah, really good, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem, my pleasure. We, um, we, um, after we came back from the game fair, I, me and Dan had a whole episode where we just talked about stuff that I'd done at the game fair, and it was all talk about. Jose this, Jose that, his new book's amazing, him and Mike did this amazing demonstration, we needed to get you on, so we got you booked in and now it's time to let all the listeners hear about the amazing experience that I got to have at the Game Fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so do you want to just start off by, intro- I gave you a little bit of an intro then as a senior chef lecturer, but do you want to just introduce yourself? Yeah, I thought that's almost professional really, wasn't it? Yeah, very professional, actually, yeah. Normally, I just say, and on this week's show, we've got Jose, and that's it. But I've never, had, I've never heard you be super professional. I was very impressed. Yeah, well, you know me. I'm really up in the game in the podcasting world now. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know, guys. I mean, I, I'm a chef, more first and foremost, and I've worked as a chef all my life in London, um, apart from a small stint abroad. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a chef that's then... I came back to where my roots were. So I was a student here at Westminster Kingsway College um, so many years ago. And uh, back in 88, I was a student here. And I did my course to become a professional chef and then went out into the wide world and then came back. And when I came back, uh, I sort of, by accident, I had gained all this knowledge about game. And not only game, I mean, I also do stuff with fish and sustainability. And provenance is a big thing that I love. I'm one of these chefs that loves a story. Of, of how things, where they come from, how they're produced, um, what they are, you know, what's special about them, the story that it tells. I think it was Keith Floyd was one of the first chefs that went out there and, and found out, you know, the ins and outs of everything, of, of you know, a particular food, of where it was, the person that was making it, the country that it was in. 
and those sorts of things really fascinated me and and it's not until I became a lecturer here at the college that I started doing lots and lots of more work not only on game but on everything else but game was one of those things that a lot of chefs were having a bit of a trouble with and it was uh, it, it sort of it was stuck in the dark ages you know yeah, and you've you've brought it out from the dark ages. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say I've brought. I'm not by myself, but I mean, no, there's been a few other chefs that have been there. But yeah, I mean, it's, we, we've done some work on it, and we've done some work to try to open chefs' eyes to what is a phenomenal product that comes from our countryside. You know, it, it's, it's there's nothing better than an animal that's lived the natural life and that natural food. Um, you know, we can't call it organic because it basically eats what it eats and goes where it goes. Um, but we can call it the most natural way of basically harvesting food. It's the closest thing to what our ancestors used to eat. Yeah, so if we rhyme back to that then, and like you said about our ancestors eating this, but also even just, I'd say even like 50 years ago and like the generation before us or the generation before that maybe used to eat a lot more game than what we do now. What, where do you think that it, it went wrong as such? Or where do you think that we we became disconnected or, or why that happened? Well, that, that, that word disconnected is a great word because basically that's pretty much what happened. We've become disconnected with our food. I mean, in, in the UK, we're, we're sort of like uh, one of the you know, top countries in the world, technology and everything else. And we, we, we have a much more built up society. We have, you know, per, per land mass, you know, we've, we've got a quite a dense population. So that means that basically the majority of all of our people, people we have living in the UK live in cities. And because they live in cities, they have a sort of a, uh, they have a discord with, with the countryside and with food and how food is produced. I mean, a lot of people don't realise how, you know, how, where milk comes from or, or you know, where, what animal beef comes from, uh, let alone anything else. Yeah, so basically, um, so yeah, because we, we, we live in these sort of like country, you know, cities that are, highly populated and there's not a lot of people basically in the rural side of it we, we don't see that connection with food um if you go to spain italy france all those sorts of countries people have a much more uh much more in tune with their food where their food comes from how it's produced um you know they all have sort of their country hideaways where they go through all my family the whole of my family throughout spain during the week they're basically working in the cities and they basically live in a flat and most of them don't live in houses, but at weekend, they've all got their little country house, which they all go to and the family gets round and has dinner together and they bake bread and, you know, they have sort of barbecues that they cook on. They go hunting, you know, so it's, it's very yeah. different from this country. Uh, and so therefore we've, we've sort of lost, lost love with some of that food. I mean, rabbits is a classic example of it. You know, Simon Whitehead will tell you that, you know, this country was built on rabbits. You know, people used to eat rabbits left, right and centre um, before the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, um, the you know, rabbit populations were massive. There were loads of them around everywhere, but they, they had to get rid of them. So they brought in this disease called myxomatosis, which annihilated the rapid rabbit population, but also turned people off eating rabbits because there was this horrible disease that they would see this rabbit walking around and in weepy eyes and it looked horrible. And yeah, it did a fantastic job in controlling the rabbit population. But then, you know, a whole generation of people saw the rabbit as being something like, Ugh, they didn't want to eat that anymore. I didn't know that about myxomatosis. <laughs> Nick, myxomatosis is a man-made um, virus that was basically brought forward. And it's, it's a virus that lives, uh, the fleas that are on the rabbits have the virus. And when the flea basically takes a, uh, a drink um, sort of from the rabbit's blood, obviously, as, which is what they do to nourish their eggs, uh, they inject an anticoagulant that stops the blood um, from uh, thickening and also from um, uh, clotting. 
And as they, that anticoagulant is quite, um, has the virus, and then that virus, then any flea that comes and drinks off that rabbit will then pass the virus on to the next rabbit it goes to. And that's how myxomatosis basically gets, it gets spread. It's a horrible disease. I mean, rabbits nowadays are starting to, um, we're starting to get over it. You know, they're starting to basically, you have rabbits that have sca uh, scabs on their ears and stuff, which is basically shows that they've had myxomatosis, but they've actually got over it. Oh, right. Um, so it's, it's, it's a man-made disease to control rabbits. Yeah, yeah I never well, knew that. That's yeah. I told you, Dan, we're going to learn a lot from this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Myxomatosis, done. <laughs> so tell us a bit more about the like, at the um, college, because you've got your own deer larder and everything there, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, the college is, um, it's a college where I, where I came. I was here, as, I was a chef here uh, for two years, uh, and then I returned to do my level three part-time here. Um, and here, basically, you know, they... they They've taught some of the, some great chefs. I mean, guys around, the guys that you know, you and the, the general public will know people like Jamie Oliver, um, Anthony Warrell Thompson, Ainsley Harriet. More recently, uh, you've got people like Mark Freudland, uh, who was on the um, uh, Great British Menu, Celine Kazim, who's, who's recently just been on Great British Menu, uh, Russell Bateman, Henry Herbert um, from the Fabulous Baker Boys, uh, mm -hmm. who's the butcher side of it. He he was here. So you've got all of these really well-known chefs that have come from here, and it's, it's a great stable for producing you know, awesome chefs out there um, in all sectors of the business. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we, we have an intake of students that come here. Uh, we're quite selective about who we take. Um, and then they're here full-time for three years. So they'll basically work first year as, a, as a, uh, a first year chef where they come in and they'll learn how to cook. We teach them all how to cook. They're 16 to 18-year-olds. Um, and we teach them how to cook and how to use the equipment in the kitchen. And they go around the sections, have rotations where they move around yeah, to all the different sections. And then from there, we then take them into uh, the second year. The second year, basically, from about 160 to 180 students, we come down to about, 100 and, I think it's about 120, 130. Um, and those select ones then go down into what we call our RWE, our Realistic Working Environment, which is the kitchens downstairs where we run the restaurants. We have two restaurants. Uh, and uh, one restaurant's a brasserie restaurant, the other one's a fine dining restaurant. And they work in all of the sections of the restaurants, including basically the patisserie, the bakery, the larder, the butchery, where we get, you know, all the game comes in, all the meat, fish, poultry, everything comes in, uh, and we basically break it all down for all of the sections um, in the restaurants, plus all of the classes that we do. And in the third year, uh, they decide where they want to do, what they want to do, whether they want to go kitchen larder, um, which is all the sections of the restaurants, again, as head chefs, and the fine dining restaurant in the section in, in charge of the section and uh if not they go kitchen bakery uh and patisserie but also we have a chocolate laboratory where we make all our own chocolates um uh, or they can go front house management so it's, it's it's a college that yeah we try to teach everybody as much as we can we try to get through the from field to table so the dealer that you mentioned there with the game element what we do is uh this week actually on on thursday i'm doing one of the classes and we're doing a class where my third year is a development class, uh, where there's two classes of third years together. So basically, you've got about 12 students, and we will get in a whole deer, uh, head on, feet on, and we'll break down that deer, we'll skin it, we'll talk about the whole field to table journey of that deer. You know, the culling process, why deer are culled, which deer we cull, what we're looking for in an animal, the, the, when it's shot, what happens to it, everything, the whole story. And then we'll skin it, 
break it down into portions, look at the portions, look at how much money they can make from the portions, look how many portions we can get out of the animal, uh, the yield that we can get from the animal. So a yeah, real field to table. And I'm, I'm really passionate that chefs should understand that. They should understand where their food comes from. You know, it's not just a, a, a something that get, turns up in a plastic bag or on a polystyrene tray or, you know, wrapped in paper. It's, 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 it's something that has died to be able for you to be able to work with it and do it justice. And I'm, I'm very passionate that chefs should should understand that, all the chefs around me. We also do, uh, I do two courses a year, we're basically for externally, where people can book on. Um, and it's uh, two sem- game seminars which we do, which basically we cover all of the small game species in the first half of the morning. Like looking, at, we have uh, examples of all of them laid out on the table. And we talk about each of the characteristics of each one. And then uh, we have a lunch downstairs, which is a three-course lunch, uh, including game. And then we come back upstairs and we have all seven of the deer species right hanging. Uh, and then we take one and, again, we give it the whole provenance and background. Uh, we talk about the characteristics of each species, the, the meat quality of each species. And then we skin one and break it all down for basically people to see that happening, much as what you saw at, um, at the game fair, Ben. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's much like that, but we, we go into a lot more detail. And that, that's a course that we do here. It's called the Game, game Seminar. Um, and I'm the, we have one in November and one in January. Um, if anybody's interested on on doing that, I mean, they can contact me. I mean, I, I, my email address is uh, jose.suto at westking.ac.uk. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you all the details. And if they contact me direct, they can book on that. It's £115 for the day. Um, but it's it's a it's a long day and there's a lunch included in the middle and it's it's a great thing and it's just a that gives you an insight into basically what the kids are doing here all of that you know provenance background stuff which is important. Well, I know that Ben's mind was blown by the snippet that he got from that. So I'm mm. sure, guys, if you're listening, you wanna you want to learn, then then that would be a fantastic uh, thing to get involved with. So to give me an email. Mm-hmm. So we, I mentioned the uh, about the, the disconnection and and. So, so you explained that, but but how how can or how do you? I think now people are more interested. Like I would say, the last few years, people are more interested in the provenance of their food, uh, where it's coming from, and uh, there's a there's a big movement in that direction. And and still, I mean, for instance, uh, like I know that goat recently has has uh, broken into the scene. I know that it's not game as such, but how does how does game uh, break back into the average family home? How 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 do we how do we make that happen? I think I think what's happened as well is that people have become scared of it because a lot of the old recipes that we have for game are very misforgiving, um, and they sort of it, it puts game in sort of like a uh, a mystical element. You know that it's it's very yeah. hard to use. It's difficult to use. It's going to be really strong. You're not going to like it, and it's not like that. Um, now, the reasons for this is because historically, you know, if we look back sort of 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, you know, uh, stalking, let's look at venison first. So stalking. So stalking was made popular by basically Queen Victoria. He went up to Scotland and basically made it very fashionable to go out and, and shoot uh, stags around about this time of year as the rut starts. Now, the problem is with stag, when a stag's in the rut, it's full of adrenaline, it's full of must. You know, it's at that time of year when the, the big fellas are basically looking to breed and get as many females together as possible. During this yeah. time, very little. Uh, they're very highly sexed and hormones, yeah, thrusting throughout their body. And, you know, at that time, all they want to do is fight. 
and get hold of as many females as possible. And this time of year, those big guys are the guys that basically, you know, they were going out to shoot. And when they'd shoot them, they'd sort of, you know, take the trophies off of them and then they'd come back to the chef of them and say, there you go, chef, and use that. And it stinks. You know, it, it's not a particularly good quality meat. At that time of year, that is not a particularly good quality animal. Earlier in the year, um, once before the animal's going to the rut, they're, they're really good quality, but not at that time. So what you've heard is these chefs basically got hold of this product and they looked at ways that how they could mask that strong flavour of meat that they had. And they used things like wine and citruses and juniper and, you know, uh, really dark chocolate with strong chocolate sauces. And so a lot of mm. these recipes basically were used for a product that had a very strong flavour. But back then we liked strong flavours because back then we didn't have all the spices that, that we have nowadays. So salt was expensive, yeah. you know, things like nutmeg, you know, you could sell your, your right kidney to basically get some nutmeg, but it, it, it was a really expensive product. So because they didn't have all these spices, we ate food that was much stronger. So to give you an example, um, mutton, right? Mutton back then was the mainstay, basically not lamb. You, there's no way you would eat lamb because wool was too expensive. You know, wool was a major, major commodity, right, that was basically used. You know, at the House of Commons, yeah, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons used to sit on a sack full of wool, and so did the king, to show basically how powerful he was that he could sit, sit on a sack of wool. And so, so because it was an expensive commodity, you would never think of killing a lamb before it had given you a whole crop of wool So but, until it was over a year old. So that you were basically killing an animal that was mutton, and that's where you ate. Pigs, the same sort of thing happens with pigs. You wouldn't dream of killing a pig until it had, had li at least one litter of piglets so that you could replace basically the, the animal that you were going to kill. So all these animals are very, very strong-flavoured animals, yeah, in what we were eating. As time's gone on, we've sort of lost a bit of that you know, we don't like that. We've got loads of other flavours that we can add to it. We like the lighter flavour of meat. In the same way that nowadays we don't tend to basically eat a lot of meat on the bone. We tend to, we've come away from that. Okay, yeah, there was a, a period, obviously, with CJD when it came in with beef um, that we stopped eating meat on the bone and we sort of lost a bit of a cord it. But that, the same thing's happened with lamb. I mean, how often do you go out to a restaurant and see lamb chops on a menu? You don't because we, nah. we become a bit fussy about eating prime cuts off the bone, you know, and having it put in front of us. So very seldom do we see that anymore. With pheasants and game birds, you know, the other game birds, again, you know, we talk about times when birds were hung, you know, and hung for a period to basically allow them to mature. Well, back then, the birds were older, so they needed hanging to basically, you know, give them, uh, to break them down a little bit. But on mainly, the reason for it was done is because basically to flavour it to give that strong flavour. Now, for me, pheasants are basically, and all the other game birds have got a lovely flavour of their own. They don't need that extra flavour of the hanging. Um, so, you know, it's something that sort of went out of fashion. But then it's also something that nowadays, as we've gone on, it never changed. The preparation methods never changed. So if you, you know, a lot of butchers, I don't buy game from any butcher. I buy game from Lincolnshire Game, which is the premier um, game company in the UK that produces game for all of the supermarkets. Right? They are the top notch. And they will use fresh, fresh. So they'll take game birds, they chill them at, at basically at source. Within less than half an hour of the birds being shot, they've gone into a chiller. Then they chill them on the travel. They chill them when they get back to their place, right? And normally they give them a day or two to relax, for the birds to relax, the adrenaline to relax within the bird. And then they prep them and use them. And those birds are phenomenal, absolute phenomenal quality of those birds. We wouldn't think about taking a load of birds and basically hanging them you know, the temperatures we have. You think about it also, back, you know, 100 years, 
you know, in October, I mean, look at the temperatures outside today. There's no way you'd hang a game bird outside and leave it there for a week or two to hang in. Yeah, they'd all go <laughs> off. Yeah, it's, uh, there's no way that we would do that. So, you know, our, our, our perceptions of it have changed, um, but the recipes didn't keep up with it. It's not until, you know, people like Mike Robinson, myself, or basically Rachel Green, who's done a load of stuff as well, you know, we all started using game in innovative ways. Yeah, and coming away from some of those set, you know, uh, recipes. You know, so recipes that in some people would, put, even the, the thought of it would put them off. I mean, you know, one of the classical recipes that everybody thinks about with hair is jugged hair. So what's jugged hair? It's a hair stew where at the end of the stew, what you do is you take the blood of the hair and you use it to thicken the sauce. Now, the whole idea of that to most people is off-putting. It, done properly, it's quite a nice dish, but hair is very, very strong in flavour. And for most people, it's too strong. So do we need to do that? No. Do we need to cook a woodcock with uh, its guts in? No, we don't. The aficionados of game basically here, the old guys will turn around and say, yo, you can't do that as sacrilege. But unfortunately, there are no rules within game. You can do what you like, as long as yeah. you understand the perimeters and the characteristics of the meat that you're using. Amazing. And I guess... Uh... Maybe uh, someone's written some books which could help point us in the right direction of, <laughs> of these things. Oh, Ben's Maybe in it. someone. Maybe someone. Yeah, he definitely has. And and the work of art of the photography in them is absolutely amazing. Like even if, uh, this is aside, and I probably shouldn't say this, but you you could buy this book even if you weren't interested in cooking whatsoever just to have no. a, have an amazing book that's got amazing photography and tells a real story through it and the recipes are also amazing but it's just a beautiful book anyway i mean yeah i mean we steve lee who, who's the photographer that i worked on the book with, is, he's a really good pal of mine right we're great friends um, I probably see more of him than I see of my wife. <laughs> um, and he, he, you know, when we sort of set out on this journey to put the book together, you know, um, the most, one of the most important elements of the book is basically some phenomenal photography that basically tells a story in pictures as well as in words. And, you know, game is a subject that some people are interested in, but if you put beautiful pictures in there, right, then you captivate lots of people. And what we wanted to do, we wanted to produce a book that was, as you said, a coffee table book that you could put down and people could flick through it and think it's absolutely beautiful from what they're doing. And then read it and learn something. Um, a book that guys that shoot would love because it's what they do and they can see it you know, put together beautifully. Um, chefs would take basically inspiration from the recipes that we put in it and also gain an understanding of the provenance. Again, you know, back to this provenance thing gain that understanding of the province and the background of that product. Um, and then for, for students, you know, there's something that basically they can take and they can keep going back to. I think uh, uh, it was Brian Turner that described it as his, you know, when we wrote Venison, he described it, as, or he still describes it as his go-to book for Venison. You know, when he wants to know something about Venison, he'll go to that book and read the little pages and find out about the particular species that he wants to know about or about a particular preparation method for part of the carcass. And we, we laid the book out so the, the beginning of the book is, you know, it's all about the species themselves. And this is with Venison, the first book, and Feathers, the second book, which is which has only just come out at the end of July, which Ben saw at the, at the game fair. It's the, the beginning telling you the story about how the, how the animals are harvested, yeah? The, the background and the history of the animals, yeah? Each individual one, um, its characteristics, its habitat, where it lives, what it eats, you know, the, the size of the animal, the, the uh, portions that we can get from the actual carcass of the animal. 
Um, then going on to basically explain how to prepare it, yeah, how to prepare the, the animal before we butcher it. Yeah, so in, in the venison, you've got a little bit of information there about bleeding and grolicking, what happens in the field, telling that story. Then you've got the breakdown of the carcass into individual parts of the, of, of the animal. So you've got shoulders, you've got long saddle, you've got the haunches, you've got the fillets. And then from there, we've then gone by seeing venison to then take each individual part of the animal and then break it down further, telling you what you can do with it, how you can cook it. Yeah, and how best basically you can use it at home. And in the, in the Feathers book, we do exactly the same. But in the Feathers book, we show preparation methods for large game birds, such as pheasants, uh, small game birds, such as pigeons, and it's not necessarily a game, but it, it's in classified as game for us as chefs, and partridges, uh, snipe and woodcock, and then also for then the uh, wildfowl, which are the duck species, so teal, uh, all that sort of stuff. The preparation for each one. And it's done beautifully right with steve taking me some great pictures of my hands from a point of view position right so you can see you know you're not sort of looking at it with a person across the table and look at it and then sort of trying to work out what you're doing no you can see it as if you were looking at it how to do it yeah and it gives us that image and then from there we then go on to basically recipes i wrote uh i can't remember how many recipes i was about 30 40 recipes basically in the book um and then to add emphasis to this product to how good this product is I asked some of the students that I taught here at the college um, if they would basically submit some recipes. And these are guys that are all outside now working. Yeah, they're all chefs in their own right um, to submit some recipes that they liked. So they did. And we had eight of them. And then we had 13, I suppose, what you'd call celebrity chefs um, who are all friends of mine who, again, I asked. And I said to them, I went to 13 of them because I thought that at least three or four of them would say no or <laughs> wouldn't be able to do it. And then it turned out that all 13 did. So in the first book, you've got people like Phil Vickery, Phil Vickery uh, you've got people like Yushun Tanaka, um, you've got Gordon, uh, Peter Gordon, um, off the top of my head, uh, I can't remember who the other ones are, but there was a whole host of fantastic chefs in that first book. Oh, the, the Galvin brothers, you know, Jeff and Chris Galvin. And in the second book, you've got uh, people like Michel Rue Jr., Brian Turner, you've got the Tanner brothers. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole host of other chefs there basically, you know, saying, look, you know, I'm telling you this, this product is good, but there's all these fantastic, great guys right, who you all look up to on telly and they're telling you it's good and this is their favourite recipe. And then at the end, we have a summing up of basically with the deer, all about the culling and why culling needs to take place. And it explains it all. Uh, very emotive telling you the facts right, of why it needs to happen and you know the facts with deer populations that we don't have any predators in the UK anymore. So therefore, you know, the deer species have to be controlled by us because we have we should only have two deer species in the UK, red and roe, and we have six deer species in the UK. So therefore it's down to us to basically control those species. Uh, and to basically to cull the animals and do what Mother Nature would have done. If we had lynx and bears and wolves here, what they would do is take the young the infirm and basically the animals that weren't quite, you know, absolutely perfect or good bloodlines. We're doing that exactly the same thing, but what we're doing is we're taking the animals at times of year when they're good quality animals that we can harvest and then put into the food chain as good quality venison, which is a very, very healthy meat. And on the game bird side, we're doing the same thing. We're going out there and basically we're harvesting animals basically at certain times of year. Okay, we, we produce the animals and put them onto a shoot, um, but it's no different to basically producing chickens you know, for the table, um, the actual fact is that the pheasant has a better life than the chicken because it's basically out in its own environment wild and it gets shot for the table, whereas chickens are basically 
force grown, um, you know, under artificial lights that makes them grow phenomenally quickly. I mean, a chicken has the largest breast muscle of an animal of a bird its size, and yet it can't, can't fly. And it has the largest leg muscles of a bird for its size. It can barely sustain its weight. But when you look at a pheasant, a pheasant is built for flying, right, and getting away and running. Yeah, that's what it's built to do. It's a wild animal. Um, and, you know, when, when we harvest those animals, basically there's a shot, bang, hits the ground, that's it, it's dead. With a chicken, you know, they're unceremoniously collected or thrown into boxes with these machines that collect them up. And then they're travelled to the slaughterhouse and then they're killed in the slaughterhouse. And I'm not saying that, you know, chicken production is wrong. Uh, I'm just saying that too many people basically try to put that comparison on that with game birds that it's basically the better option. It's not, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a good, yeah. interesting way to think about it because I think I think people don't think about it, do they? Any meat that you buy from a supermarket, you don't you don't think about it. But as soon as you say no. game, instantly you're thinking about hunting, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we Steve and I spent a long time working together. Venison took eight years to write. That's eight years of us going out into the countryside, right, working together. You know, Steve's, Steve is just one of these guys that when you can take him out and you forget he's there and he'll take the most phenomenal pictures, right, if you just forget he's there and very natural pictures. Yeah. And the same happened with, with uh, Feathers. We started Feathered two years before we finished um, Venison and Feathers took four years to write. So, I mean, we spent nearly 10 years writing books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so... I mean, you know, we put our heart and soul into both books. And, you know, you don't make money from writing books, I'll tell you that now. It, you know, it, it, for us both, it, it was a labour of love to put that book together, to get that message out to a product that we both love and we think that more people basically should be using. Um, so, it, it, and to tell the story, you know, and I think with Venison and, and Feathers, you know, the book is very attractive when you look at the cover. Um, and I think if we get someone that doesn't know anything about game or someone that's a bit, a little bit sort of middle of the road, take that book, open it up, start to read it, learn something about it, and by the end of it, look at it, and then can make uh, an informed decision as to whether he thinks it's right or wrong. And I would challenge you to basically think that you think it's wrong. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a good quality product and basically that's been naturally harvested and very ethical. Yeah, it is. And and I, I think I'm one of those people that I went in, I had nothing against game meat. I just was uneducated to it. And the game fair completely opened my eyes to this whole world that I kind of knew existed, but I just wasn't involved in it. And that that whole weekend just opened my eyes. And then people like yourself producing these sort of books are going to potentially transform the whole world of game. And I think you saw, Ben, at the game fair, how well it lends itself to basically, you know, cooking on, on the barbecues. I mean, like, you know, when we were cooking on, on the Komodo with the, with the um, you know, the venison haunch and the, the, the loins and everything else, apart from that, even the birds, when you're cooking the birds spatchcocked and stuff like that, it cooks beautifully well. Yeah. And I, over, during the summer, I, I shoot quite a lot of roe deer, so during the summer, the, those haunches that were like uh, Rachel cooked on the, on the barbecue, um, yeah, we do them all the time. I go away, right, and we'll take a barbecue with us, right, and we basically cook it on the barbecue all the time, that stuff like that, and it's delicious. Yeah. yeah. And it takes such little time, such little preparation to do. Yeah, I think that was my, like, killer reason for getting you on, because not only is it awesome to just learn more about game, but it was every single chef, pretty much, that was there for the weekend used the grill and transformed this meat into amazing flavours, all very simple, basic recipes that anyone could do. Um, there was nothing, 
I think like they the dishes looked amazing, but as you were talked through by the chefs, you didn't think, oh, this is out of my league. I'm not sure if I can produce this sort of stuff. But it was all just nice, simple grilled meats and roasted meats. Um, and you also you did a lot of stuff with the Bradley Smoker as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm an avid fan of Bradley Smokers. I've been using them for years. And um, while we were there at the game fair, we did some uh, Alaskan wild salmon. Um, uh, with Bradley, we did some hot smoked and cold smoked, and then we did some dishes from the hot and cold smoke that we'd done. And it's uh, Bradley's, you know, are great because I think that they give you a control, you know, that you, if you've got a smoker box or something like that, it doesn't give necessarily give you that control because you, you take it too far, and then you get the sort of acrid smoke that's not nice. But with the Bradleys, I mean, we, I've got here at the college, uh, Bradley sponsors here, and we've got um, one, two, three, five, five uh, Bradley smokers here. Um, and it's readily used by everybody. We make our own smoked salmon here, um, and we developed a, a fridge, which I think you might have seen at the game fair. Yeah, yeah, um, did, yeah. Yeah, there's two different types of fridges. We've got a game larder, which is basically it's it's, uh, it's called the Huntsman game larder, made by Indoor Refrigeration, and we we developed that for basically hanging deer. But then we took that one stage further, um, and we put a glass door on it and UV lights, so that we could basically take our smoked salmons and, if you like. Uh, dry them so basically when they go into the fridge they dry so you get that lovely outer skin which is called a pedicule that, that basically allows the smoke to adhere to it and gives a lovely flavor um so we've you know we've, we've done quite a bit of work on that and then things with game is game lends itself phenomenally well to that because you know smoking and curing was something that was done out of necessity before now we do it because we like the flavor um, not at necessity because we have refrigeration now but if you have a glut of game you know during the season and then you smoke it yeah, it keeps so well, yeah, mm. and, and the flavour's so good. And in the summer, you can use it in salads and you can basically do soups with it. You can, you can do loads. There's no end to the possibilities that you can do. I mean, I, I made a fantastic terrine that's in the uh, in the, um, in the the second book, which with using smoked game, you know, smoked pigeon, smoked partridge, smoked pheasant, I think I did, and duck, um, which we put through a terrine. And it looks fantastic. It tastes great. I've been speaking to a lot of chefs recently and the Bradley smoker does come out so highly rated with chefs because of that repeatability, I think, within. It's just it's like your ingredient that you know you're going to do it for this amount of time and you're able to repeat the process time and time again. Yeah, well, one of the things that we've done with Bradley's is obviously, I mean, I've been working with them now for probably about five or six years um, and obviously all the students that come through us learn about the Bradley's and how to use them. So... If you're seeing an upturn in, in the use of Bradley smokers or smokers as a whole, it's because, you know, we, we turn out, you know, 90 to 100 chefs every year, full-time guys, and some of those are going to basically go out there and, yeah, I want to smoke my own stuff. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get one of those Bradleys. And we've had chefs from the, you know, from companies here from outside, um, you know, the, uh, the Jamira uh, Carlton Towers. They have a couple of smokers, I think they have now, which they did all their training here with me. And so the Salt Yard, uh, ben Tish, when he was head chef of the Salt Yard, uh, he did his training. He, I, I taught him how to use the smokers in a very basic way, and then they took that to another level. Mm. You know, a lot, a lot of stuff they do there is they, they tend to impart the smoked flavour um, onto meat, uh, and then what they'll do is they'll, you know, they'll take a steak, put it through the Brad, Bradley smoker on a cold smoke, take it out after about sort of 20 minutes, half an hour, and the steak looks the same as it went in because obviously there's no heat. But then what they'll do is if they cook it on a char grill that's got, you know, the volcanic rock as opposed to basically charcoal. Yeah. And if they cook it on there, once it's cooked, because it's been through the smoker, it's got that flavour of basically being cooked on a wood-fired wood oven, you know, mm. or on a wood, over wood, 
you know, which 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 is fantastic sort of flavour. And that's that's one way that they've looked at using it. Yeah, we had we had Ben Tish on the show like when we very first started actually, didn't we, Dan? He's probably one of our I don't know. One of our first ones. Yeah, one yeah. of our first That's ten great. guests probably. <laughs> he's great. No, Ben Ben's a good friend of mine. I've known him for years. He's in the first book. He's in he's in um uh venison. He he, he submitted a recipe. He's actually he's the first in the fit chef section. I think he's the first chef there. Yeah. Um and I, I've known Ben for a long time because my parents are both Spanish. So basically I have a bit of an affinity with Spanish food as well. And obviously he uh, salt yard Spanish and Italian food were yeah. sort of like you know that's what the whole emphasis of the restaurants is all about. Yeah, yeah. He, he was cooking with Tom Kitchen the other day. That was looked pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Another another chef that I you know I take my hat off to. That's done phenomenal stuff with game. You know, Tom's done. Some yeah. Stuff. He's written a game book. Um, you know, and a meat book I think he's done as well. Um, you know, he he again, he's another one of these chefs that's basically thought outside the the box yeah and produces some great stuff you know and and, and simplifies it as well someone who's yeah. such an amazing chef like even like the recipes i've seen the game recipes i've seen of his have been simple recipes that he just he basically tries to just avoid any of the i don't know not the stigma but the the negative maybe connotations people have and and just talks about how simple it is and how easy and then yeah so i would advise if people to go on into some recipes on youtube and stuff from tom yeah. on our games so get on and have a look at those yeah, and it, yeah, but that's the whole secret, isn't it? I mean, it's it's it, the more complex you make something, the more people will be turned off by it. When I when I first started doing the game fairs and doing demonstrations at the game fair, and I went to some of the game fairs to watch what chefs were doing, and there were some great chefs, and I mean some great chefs, who were working in restaurants and were doing the dishes that they did in their restaurants, and I watched these guys doing the dishes, and I looked at the you know demographic of the people that were basically watching it. And I thought, nobody here is going to do that dish at home. Not one person here is going to do that. And I sort of said to myself, when I do these, I'm going to make them simple. I'm going to do stuff that people find easy to do at home. Or what I'm going to do is I'm going to show people how to prepare it. I'm going to cook it very simply just with a bit of salt, let them taste it, and then tell them they can do anything they do with a chicken with a pheasant. Yeah, as long yeah. as they're careful and slightly undercook it. So basically, it's not like a chicken. Chicken's very unforgiving. Yeah, it contains lots of water and fat. This doesn't contain that, so you've got to be a little bit edge on the side of caution when you're cooking it. A slightly undercooked, undercooked game is not going to hurt you. Undercooked chicken <laughs> is going to hurt you. In some <laughs> cases, basically, it can kill you. But um, you know, with game, you 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 undercook and then you're allowed to rest. Resting is one of the key things about basically cooking game. Same as it is with with key with cooking fish. Very close similarities between the two. Yeah, I've got, I've got a recipe. This this weekend, I was at the Albury Food Festival. Uh, in Suffolk, and uh, I was doing some dems, and I did a dem with uh, Drew Baker, uh, who won MasterChef, and we did three dem, we did three dishes in one dem, but it was simple, simple, simple barbecue food, right? Simple, yeah. Harissa uh, partridge breast, right? Which partridge breast just marinating a bit of harissa in um, Greek yogurt, yeah, with a little bit of lemon juice, marinated in there, put onto skewers, cooked on the barbecue, and then served basically in a pita bread with again with a little bit of, of uh, some Greek yogurt and um, uh, coriander in there. Delicious, oh, absolutely delicious. And it's so easy to do. Yeah, you, know, you can count all the ingredients on both pretty much on one hand. And that that's how it should be not to turn people off. And we should have more people that basically will shoot game in the winter, keep it, put it in the freezer, keep it for the summer, chuck it on the barbecue. It's great. I, I think we could, well, we were like so only scratching the surface of this whole game area. I think we could definitely get you back on in the future to talk about 
a lot more stuff and in more depth. But just before we go, I just couldn't not mention this because another part of my whole game fair experience was your book launch party and I, was, I, got, I got involved I got to cook a few little bits for the people on the grill but the main event for me was when I suddenly looked up and saw this huge bird coming in and it was ridiculous I don't I can't remember what sort of bird it was I just want to say it was an eagle because it was massive <laughs> <laughs> well we we a friend of mine came over with an eagle basically throughout the day uh, a guy called John Mead, um, who flies a, a male golden eagle, um, he came out throughout the day and basically came up to the game, game theatre to see me. I mean, there's, <clears throat> there's, there's no sort of secret. I'm a falconer and I fly birds of prey myself. Um, and my wife has a falconry business. So basically we have about 70 birds of prey at home. Um, and a lot of them are used for demonstration purposes. Basically we use them for demos. We uh, use them. She does wildlife programs. She does uh, corporate events um you know advertising anything you basically that, that someone wants a bird to do uh, and a lot of educational stuff it does at schools and stuff like that and um i hunt with birds of prey i always have so i fly a goshawk and a peregrine uh, my wife flies a harris hawk um which basically we full fly at game um and then yeah at the event we had um some of the birds there the ones we had there were some falcons uh, we didn't have a goshawk there we had falcons there and the reason we had them there was because part of Feathers is explains about the historical way in which game was gathered for the table. And one of those historical ways is, is falconry. And falconry has you know, come from the Middle Ages all the way through the ages. And it's a, it's a real, it's, it's an unusual sport. It's an art. It's not a sport. It's an art. It's an art that's basically really come down through all of the uh, countries in the world. It's part of our, our heritage you know, and there are loads of things, loads of countries throughout the world that are connected with everybody through falconry. Um, a few years back, my wife helped organise um, a big uh, falconry festival. In that falconry festival, you know, there, there must have been about sort of 30, 40 different countries there that all did falconry. And I, I never imagined that so many countries did, but they do. So it's an intrinsic part of our natural heritage, yeah, to do that. And my wife, like I say, runs a business called CJ's Birds of Prey, and we do all sorts of stuff like that. And we did a big section of the book showing how how game is, is harvested for the table using birds of prey. It's called the, uh, the, the, um, the hawking party. And there's a part in the book that shows all that. And there's another part that's called the shooting party, which again tells you the story of a day shooting, which has a little pullout in the middle of the book, which uh, a lot of people have yet to discover. <laughs> I think you even had your son there with a little hawk as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's part of the family. He comes out with us. He basically, uh, he trained his first bird last year. Um, and he's has been out with us. Um, obviously, with him, he's a little bit blase about it. Most people come to our house and they look at everything, and go, "Oh my God!" A friend of mine discovered, uh, said to me last year. He said, uh, "I don't need to take the kids to the zoo. He said, I'll just bring them to your house." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How old is your son? So my son, he's he's nine. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, nine, nine going on twenty-two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you know what I mean, he's at that age. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, he recently discovered Fortnite. And uh, we've gone off the birds of prey a little bit, yeah. but I mean, hopefully we'll bring him round again. <laughs> uh, I've probably been playing him. I'm a bit addicted to that at the moment as well. <laughs> uh, well, Great. thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Like I said, I feel like we've we've given a nice little intro there, but I think we could go into a lot more detail. I think it'd be yeah. great, great to get you back on in the future to talk, talk through some, some of those techniques and um, yeah, next time we see you at a show, maybe we even do something live, like do a bit of a recording with you. Yep, not a problem. Glad to, guys. Awesome. 
Yeah, well, thanks Great. again awesome. for Thank coming on. If anyone wants to Thank find you. you on social media and websites, have you got that sort of stuff? Yep, uh, social media basically uh, on Twitter. Um, my main thing is basically Twitter and uh, Instagram. I'm on Facebook as well, but Twitter, uh, it's Wild Food Boy. Um, and on Instagram, it's Wild underscore Food underscore Boy. Um, <laughs> and then basically on, on Facebook, I'm uh, Jose Luis Suto on Facebook. But if, uh, if anybody basically, they can contact me on any of those. Uh, if you're interested in, you know, like I said, basically doing these seminars here at the college, um, or if you'd like, you know, book, people can get signed books from me if they want as well. Basically, some people use them as Christmas presents mm-hmm. um, and I can dedicate them to anybody. Then contact me either via any of the social media uh, or on my email address, which again is uh, Jose, so that's J-O-S-E dot S-O-U-T-O, that's Suto, at Westking, W-S-T-K-I-N-G dot A-C dot U-K. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks again, mate. We'll speak to you soon. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You're listening to United Q Podcast. We're brought to you by Pro-Q, Kamado Joe, Thermopen and Smokewood Shack. Pro-Q's extensive range of bullet smokers, reverse flow and gravity-fed smokers will suit all, from the home enthusiast to the big volume caterer. Kamado Joe, the king of ceramics, is renowned for build quality and innovation. From smoking, roasting or searing, get that great barbecue taste and keep the moisture locked in. Thermopen Instant Read Thermometers. Take the guesswork out of barbecuing with the super fast Thermopen. Smokewood Shack delivers quality smoking wood every time. They provide the smoky goodness, you provide the talent.